You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning. Uh, welcome and thank you for joining us for this, uh, what I believe is a very important, very timely event. My name is George Moose. I have the privilege and the honor of serving as the chair of the board of directors of the United States Institute of Peace. And we are gathered here this morning to launch the Institute's new senior study group report, Enhancing Strategic Stability in Southern Asia. Uh, that report is now available on the USIP website at usip.org. Now, certainly while the Russian invasion of Ukraine has dominated the news and the thinking of policymakers all over the world, there certainly is no shortage of other potential conflict regions around the world. Uh, South Asia has the unfortunate distinction of being the world's only region where three nuclear armed states share contested and frequently violent borders. It is also where two nuclear powers, India and Pakistan, have in the past launched airstrikes on each other's territories. Meanwhile, China's presence in the region, manifested in part through sharpening border tensions with India and a deepening strategic partnership with Pakistan, is also reshaping the strategic balance in the region, as is the deepening US partnership with India. In early March of this year, an errant missile launched by India struck Pakistani territory. The region and the world were exceedingly fortunate that there were no casualties and that the incident did not escalate. But that incident highlighted, once again, the potential for unexpected crisis in the region. The implications of the shifts of regional power dynamics for the potential onset of conflict and for the ability of the United States to manage any crises that may emerge from the region demand our urgent and serious attention. Beginning last summer, USIP's South Asia and China programs convened a group of senior experts to consider these challenges. The group was comprised of noted analysts and practitioners with experience working on both regional security dynamics and global nuclear security. In the following months, the group met in seven plenary sessions. Uh, their report, released today, summarizes the group's findings and examines US policy options. Importantly, it identifies priority recommendations for the resolution or mitigation of core disputes, the enhancement of regional st strategic stability, and the management of potential future crises. To discuss the issues in greater detail, we are pleased to have with us three, the three co-chairs of the study group, as well as two of the group's members. Joining us on the panel today are study group co-chairs, Dr. Diane Marking, a senior advisor here at USIP's South Asia program, Vikram Singh, also a senior advisor at USIP's Asia program, and Dr. Andrew Scobell, a USIP Distinguished Fellow with the China Program. We are also pleased to be joined by two study group members, Lynn Rustin, 
who is the vice president at the Nuclear Threat Initiative, and Yun Sun, the co-director of the China program at the Stimson Center. Our program today will be, uh, begin with a moderated panel discussion, and we will then allow time for questions from the audience here and online. For those of, us, for those of you who are joining us online, please use the question box on the event webpage or the hashtag uh, SAsiaStrategicStability. That's SAsiaStrategicStability, all one word. Uh, the team there, uh, the team here will relay those, those questions to us. Uh, we are looking forward to a discussion that illuminates the shifts in the strategic balance in Southern Asia. We are also looking to highlight opportunities and priorities for the United States, for other regional powers, and other partners to forestall conflict in the region. And finally, uh, we hope to identify measures that could be prepared in advance to ensure that uh, whatever crisis or event might emerge does not erupt or, uh, or escalate further in, and uh, risking a regional conflict and the possibility of approaching that nuclear threshold. So with that, let's uh, begin the discussion. Might I begin with you, Dan? Please. Uh, and I wonder if you could just very briefly uh, summarize the key takeaways from uh, the report that's being released today. Absolutely, and I, I'm excited to do that. Uh, I also just wanted to briefly say a quick word of thank you to fellow co-chairs, of course, who have joined us, other members, some are here today, and others uh, who couldn't make it, but really put a lot of effort into this. Uh, our executive directors, uh, Tamana Salukadeen and Jennifer Statz, uh, the rest of our USIP team, and especially Colin Cookman, who put in a tremendous amount of effort to make this really come together. So without them, none of this would have been possible. Um, the report is, I think, very timely, as you pointed out. It does a number of things, and I think it does them well. Uh, first, it identifies the nature of a problem, uh, a problem that in some ways uh, is consistent. That is, we see nuclear powers, India, Pakistan, China. They didn't just become nuclear powers this past year. That's been true for some time. But we see an evolution, both in terms of the capabilities that they bring to bear, uh, more, uh, more and more, and different types of weapons and technologies that we found worrisome. And perhaps even more important than that, we've seen an evolution in the nature of their relationships and also their relationships with the United States. And we can get into the details, but a lot of that has led us to be quite concerned that the deteriorating relationship, particularly between India and China and India and Pakistan, leads to possibilities for even the potential of nuclear use uh, in the region that are very worrisome to us. So we wanted to highlight that and bring that uh, to the attention of policymakers. The report does two other things, again, I think well. It identifies a framework for assessing these problems. So the framework is essentially what are the core and underlying disputes? That's question number one. What are the nature of the um, kind of the capabilities uh, and changing capabilities, particularly relevant to nuclear use? And what are the crisis scenario uh, concerns that we may have? So thinking in a sense about long-term underlying problems, nuclear-specific problems, and short-term crisis problems. And then the last thing it does is it identifies a series of what we think are realistic policies that the United States should undertake in the near term after having thought about some of the options, we kind of lay out a number of priority recommendations. And just very briefly, one or two of them, you know, we look at 
the, the limited capabilities of the United States to bring peace in this region, but we still suggest that there are opportunities to seize narrow tactical, uh, sort of limited near-term uh, chances to promote peace and dialogue between India and Pakistan, India and China, that's not being done. Um, we look at economic incentives and disincentives that might be brought to bear to improve our ability to deter uh, China from coercive behavior in the region. Um, and in terms of crisis management, we think very seriously about preparing U.S. officials to better manage these crises that we think are likely to crop up again and again in the near term. Thanks very much. Actually, that segues nicely, I think, for, to a question I have for you, Len, which is that you, you have vast experience working on nonproliferation and nuclear risk reduction issues across the world, have a sense of what those mechanisms are that contribute to risk reduction. I just wonder, what, in your view, what is the state of play with respect to efforts in the region to limit the proliferation of nuclear weapons uh, related to delivery systems, for example, in, in Southern Asia, and, and particularly describe what the U.S. role has been or might be in this regard. Sure. Thank you very much, Ambassador Moose. And it was a pleasure to be part of the, the working group, so I appreciate that. So speaking from an American perspective in terms of nonproliferation, and I'll define that broadly in terms of you know, nuclear risks, nuclear competition, um, first we have China, which is has a relatively small arsenal right now compared to that of the United States and Russia, but is projected to grow significantly, um, up to 700 deployed warheads um, by within the next five years and possibly as many as 1,000 by the end of the decade. That would be a significant e expansion, um, which is something that obviously the United States is concerned about. Um, President Biden and she have committed to a strategic stability dialogue, but there's no evidence yet that that has, has taken place. So that's one factor. It's, it's really hard to talk about this issue set and the region without veering a little bit north to look at North Korea, because obviously um, North Korea's um, nuclear and missile threat is significant um, in the present day for our allies in the region um, and potentially for the United States. And it's also really important to factor into that um, that it is a driver, how we and our allies are responding in terms of defense and deterrence um, toward North Korea, which is essential, is also a driver, though, of China's um, potential nuclear growth. And so as our, the report does an excellent job uh, talking about how all the, all the interconnections um, between states and the regions and how they're impacting each other. Looking to, at India and Pakistan, um, Clearly, the U.S. priority right now is building the broader strategic relationship and defense cooperation with, with India. And as the report points out, that may make us less able to act as a, um, you know, a neutral uh, mediator in the event of a conflict, either between um, India and China or India and Pakistan. And I think what that also means is that although the Biden administration is certainly putting more emphasis on nonproliferation as a, as a national security priority, possibly than the last administration, um, I think the reality is that it's actually getting undervalued um, across the board in many relationships as we've, and, and I'll take India as an example, as we really focus on our strategic partnership. Um, 
I think, and I'll, and I'll, I'll end with AUKUS as an example of that, or with the deal with Australia, where, again, I think the nonproliferation complications of that deal were maybe under, under considered at the time, and now there's an effort, um, having made the commitment to, to do the deal, to kind of make it as proliferation resistant as possible. And it's a problem not so much because of um, Australia, which has a stellar nonproliferation record, but because of the precedent it will set for other countries. Um, and so I think this, you know, a, a theme of this report is um, how we're maybe not as, as well prepared and positioned we, as we could be to help, you know, prevent crises, manage them should they occur, and certainly keep them from, from going nuclear. And so I think the report has a lot of good recommendations in that regard um, to help maybe do some rebalancing as, um, as we form our, our, our policies with, with countries um, like India um, and others um, that are emphasizing, you know, I think, other important priorities, but, but um, it'll be not a good situation if we're seeing a conflict in the region with the potential to escalate to nuclear, and we haven't thought about what we could have done to head that off. Clearly a lot there about the implications of our own deepening relationship with India and how that, how that affects the calculations of the other players in the region. There's a lot there to unpack, and maybe we can come back to it later, but I wanted to come back to something down you said earlier, talked about the deterioration in relationships between and among the, the, uh, the states in the region. And, and, and you and I wonder, um, with that, um, you know, certainly we have seen over the past several years a significant deterioration in the relationship between China and India. And I wonder if you would share with us your thoughts um, on how this deterioration in bilateral relationships uh, is affecting sort of the broader strategic stability in the region, and, and, and what is driving this development from, from the vantage point, from the perspective of China? Um, and you know, are there opportunities or possibilities here uh, to do something to, to halt or even <laughs> redirect that, uh, that downward slide in relations. Thank you, Ambassador Moose. Those are terrific questions. And I think for our, uh, the report, it looked into some of the issues and made really substantive recommendations in this regard. I would say that between China and India, there are two angles to look at the strate strategic stability implications from the deterioration of their relations. The first one is between China and India. The other one is China versus India-Pakistan dynamics, what role China would play. In terms of the first angle, in the Chinese perspective, the strategic stability issue is not something between China and India, which is why China has consistently rejected the idea of N7, because China does not want to honor or honor India as a, as a peer in terms of the, uh, the nuclear power status. Let me just pause you there, oh. because you, since you mentioned N7, could you just say, Say what, 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 is, what is that? And seven is uh, nuclear seven. Um, so hmm. P5, uh, the five nuclear powers the five on the UN Security Council power. plus India and Pakistan. Plus India and Pakistan. Um, okay. So that idea had been circulated for a while, but the Chinese are like, well, we're not going to accept India as up here. And therefore, um, the, a grouping of N7 would, in the Chinese mind, confer India that legitimacy and mm -hmm. that status. Yeah. Right. So, but for, for China, I think the the perception about a potential nuclear event between China and India is extremely small, almost negligible. Ask any uh, mm -hmm. analyst in the South Asia 
circle in, in China, nobody believes it. And whenever we Americans raise the idea that, well, what's, what about the possibility? And the Chinese just laugh at us. Um, I think there are three reasons for this, uh, for this attitude. The first one is, well, both China and India have the no first use principle. So from their perspective, well, we're not going to use it first. They're not going to use it first. So nobody uses it first. And there's not going to be a nuclear interaction. And secondly, since the um, vast gap of the national power between China and India also plays a role. Because for the Chinese, they can use overwhelming conventional forces to achieve what they, uh, to achieve their desired goal. So there's no need to touch the nuclear piece of the, of the potential. And then from the uh, Indian perspective, at least in the Chinese view, the Indians realize that their nuclear arsenal also has a pretty large gap from the, what the Chinese have. So if India does not really have the advantage, what's the point of using it? I think that's the second logic. And the third logic is, for the Chinese, the nuclear arsenal is almost exclusively reserved for uh, deterrence against the United States. So using it against other uh, countries, or even in, including nuclear powers, is, is quite unimaginable in the Chinese policy lexicon. And I haven't seen any credible uh, analysis in the Chinese strategic community that even talks about the, the possibility. We know that in China, there is a debate ongoing as for whether China should give up the no first use uh, principle or make it conditional. And what, what do they mean by condition? Uh, it means that no first use for any country except the United States. So basically single United States out. But all those discussions uh, do not touch upon other countries except the United States. And last but not least, of course, uh, we know that last year, President Biden and President Xi, in their discussion in a virtual summit, they talk about the possibility of having a strategic stability dialogue between the two countries, but now the Chinese are backpedaling from it. Yeah. So now, well, we misunderstood. We saw you meant a strategic uh, security dialogue yeah. instead of a strategic stability, stability dialogue, which has a very clear connotation. So uh, some of the track tools with the Chinese have been canceled or postponed because they are not willing to touch upon this issue. Um, so that's the first angle between China and India. The second angle is what role China plays between India and Pakistan. And I think that's where our report really plays a significant role contributing to the discourse and the discussion. Because uh, since 2020, well basically since Trump administration, in the Chinese view, South Asia is morphing towards a bipolar world, a bipolar region with China, uh, with China Pakistan on one side and US India on the other side. And what that means is that when there is a potential uh, confrontation or escalation of crisis between India and Pakistan, China is not neutral. Mm -hmm. And the China will put itself squarely on the side of Pakistan and whatever calculations that they make or whatever role, constructive role that we will ask China to play, they're going to look at it from the angle as for what does that do for us? How does that benefit China? Yeah. And if China is putting pressure on Pakistan in order to mitigate Pakistan's freedom of operation vis-a-vis uh, -vis India, the Chinese will think, what does that do in terms of the strategic layout or the strategic balance of power in South Asia and how that will affect China's relationship with Pakistan and in the long run affect China's ability to compete and use leverage against the United States. Mm -hmm. So I think in that sense, the deterioration of relations between China and India has contributed tremendously against a potential role for China to play to manage or to play a constructive role in a South Asia uh, strategic stability or a new Nuclear event. Thank you. Thank you. Yes.
course, we were mindful that a few months ago we thought the you know, a Russian invasion of Ukraine was also illogical and did not make, make a lot of sense. So um, as I'm listening to you uh, tease out the Chinese rationale for why nuclear weapons would never figure in in a conflict with, with India, I'm uh, cautioned by that recent experience. But um, uh, if I might, Andrew, turn to you and stay with China for a bit, because clearly China looms large in American thinking about strategic stability in the region, and indeed, um, I just would welcome your thoughts about how this heightened competition now between the U.S. and China um, has, has perhaps impl implications for us, made the challenges of preventing or managing a crisis in South Asia more, more difficult? Um, for, for, Andrew? For, for, for Andrew. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. No, well, <laughs> uh, thanks, Ambassador Bruce. Uh, actually, my, my uh, answer, I think, will dovetail nicely with what uh, Yun had to say. Uh, you know, to state the obvious, uh, you know, U.S.-China relations are not in a good place right now. And uh, honestly, I don't see them improving uh, significantly any time soon. So that complicates, uh, that complicates uh, things along the lines that Yun was, was saying. You know, elevated great power competition between U.S. and China is a, you know, puts a, geo, uh, a global uh, geopolitical uh, overlay on an already fragile condition of uh, strategic stability in the regional context. I think although Islamabad and New Delhi almost certainly don't think of themselves as uh, client states or proxy states of Beijing and, and Washington respectively, China and I think China and the U.S. are increasingly uh, uh, seeing Southern Asian developments uh, through the prism of what Beijing calls block politics. And uh, you know, what, what this means is, as, as Yun was, was, uh, was saying, is that uh, Beijing increasingly sees New Delhi as a quasi-ally of Washington, and Washington increasingly sees Islamabad as a de facto ally of, of Beijing. So just as just as, uh, as Yun was saying, just as um, China is not a disinterested uh, or, or not a neutral um, player in this, uh, the perception of, of multiple parties is that neither is the United States. Yeah, and this is, uh, again, one of those concerning trends, as you as Yun was saying, increasingly the trend seems to be to, uh, towards a bifurcation of a uh, of the region into an alignment of uh, U.S. and India on one side of that equation, China, Pakistan, and the other, which is different from the past, is it not, Vikram? Um, and I wondered if you would speak to us a little bit more. Uh, let's start with just talking about the India-Pakistan relationship. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, over the last several years, we've witnessed efforts to uh, to create, to build bridges between India and Pakistan. We've also seen major tensions, um, notably sparked by events in Kashmir and, and uh, terrorist attacks. Uh, tell us how this now, how these trends are impacting yeah. on it. You know, so one of the really interesting things through this project was that it was basically looking at a, a set of dynamics where the, where, the, where the realities between these three players have been dramatically changing, really in the past decade, decade and a half, but the strategic stability debate is kind of frozen in time. It didn't really move along with the changes. So between um, 
between India and Pakistan, the, the, the big changes, really going back to 2008 and the terrorist attacks in Mumbai, are that India shifted to a posture of having kinetic responses into, up to Pakistani territory and then into Pakistani territory as a means to deter Pakistan-backed extremists from attacks in India. So to, trying, to, trying to you know, indicate that there would be punitive measures. And then Pakistan similarly decided that its, its stance would be to also conduct limited retaliation. Both basically have now taken kind of an escalate to de-escalate stance if they have a crisis. Um, previously, we didn't see that prior to, um, prior to the most recent flare-ups, Balakot, Pulwama, those those, those crises. Prior to that, it was more likely that they would try to ramp down tensions without um, escalating, and certainly without escalating to the point that we saw where they were shooting down aircraft, mm. where they were actually conducting strikes into one another's uh, actual territory beyond the, the borders of contested, uh, uh, contested Kashmir. So that, that shifted, and then at the same time, you know, a little bit after, China and India dynamics shifted from one of sort of very much win-win cooperation. We're going to we're going to have a frozen conflict that we acknowledge is frozen with 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 mechanisms. You know, people forget often that China and India have pretty sophisticated mechanisms for consultations and de-escalation of tensions along the borders. Those all then failed after the Galwan incident and radically shifted. Uh, Indian strategic thought vis-a-vis -vis China mm. to one of, uh, of, of China really being uh, uh, much more of a, of, a, of a strategic threat. And that means that whereas in the past, outside powers, United States, China, and others would kind of all call for de-escalation in the event of a uh, India-Pakistan crisis, we'd basically end up on the same page. Even if this was not coordinated through extensive discussions and planning, we were going to be on the same page. That is now seriously in doubt. And the dynamic for India looking at its neighborhood has gone from one where it didn't expect, it, where people would talk about the risk of what if we have a two-front confrontation with China and Pakistan. Uh, to, to that being almost uh, assumed as a possibility that India has to plan for and, and think about its force posture and think about how it, would, how it would manage swinging forces between two theaters. You know, what if China decides to take advantage of a Pakistan-India flare-up or Pakistan decides to take advantage of a China-India flare-up? What might, what might happen there has, be, has, has grown in the as a concern uh, for, for India. Now notably, when, when India and China came to blows in, over Galwan, Pakistan did not take advantage of that. And in fact, shortly thereafter, Pakistan and India renewed the ceasefire along the line of control and have kept things more stable rather than, you know, rather than seeing things get more unstable. But there is an absolute lack of strategic engagement among the three powers about how they would manage escalation. And there is a great deal, much more uncertainty now than there has been in the past, you know, if you go back prior to the last decade, much more uncertainty into how the you know, crises might spiral. Um, I think uh, what we've seen in Russia and Ukraine actually is a, is a, gives us a reason to think hard about the unthinkable. And that's a lot of what we were doing in this report. Let me follow up with you, Lynn, if I might, on, on that question, which is, you know, 
because we, uh, we just recently saw, even since the report was pretty much finalized, uh, an incident in which uh, a missile uh, tested, being tested, I gather, from India, uh, struck Pakistan territory. Um, and indeed, India and Pakistan appear to have responded to that in a pretty responsible, restrained way. Um, and I just wonder what that, what that tells us, going to Vikram's point, about the preparedness of both sides to manage what the, the mechanisms, what the communication structures are that might facilitate, might help them manage these kinds of incidents. Certainly in this case, the response was one that led to a de de did not lead to an escalation, led to a de-escalation. But could you share your thoughts more broadly about Sure. I mean, about I the state of and the status of, uh, of, uh, of preparedness for, for conflict. Sure. I mean, that's a, a very good example of how an escalation could happen. And that, it, I mean, it's terrible that it happened. It's fortunate that when it did, it was a time of pretty much total, I mean, peace, no conflict, no elevated tensions between India and Pakistan. But, you know, a, a, a missile being test launched landed in Pakistan. Now, the, by all reports, the communications between the two countries about it wasn't, wasn't good. India was very slow in, you know, saying that this had happened and explaining yeah. why it happened and that it was not intended and all, but, but Pakistan was restrained in its response. But uh, it's a very good example of how something unintended um, can be misunderstood and lead to an escalation. And you could imagine in a different environment that could have come out very badly. Also, they're fortunate it didn't kill any people. And have um, you seen in the wake of that any evidence of a concern about precisely about the, I think there's the, the ability to respond? Concern, to I don't know, and maybe Vikram follows more closely whether there's been any follow-up to improve mechanisms. I mean, the, the, the Indians and the Pakistanis have discussed it, but I think Lynn hits the the mm. crux. It landed in an empty field. It didn't yeah. hurt anybody. It yeah. didn't land in a population center or near a strategic installation. And I think the Pakistanis, seeing where it was headed, took a responsible path. But there was not uh, immediate communication between the two, as far as we know, to say, hey, this was an accidental launch. Don't freak out, right? Like, um, that didn't happen. Mm. On the back end, the Indians came out, publicly said what happened, have taken actions to you know, both discipline people that were negligent in this case and to have an investigation. The question now is, will they share the outcome of that investigation with the Pakistanis? Will they use this as a reason to establish some kind of mechanism where they say, you know what, if something like that happens in the future, we want to be able to proactively communicate. Mm -hmm. uh, and I hope they will, but we, we don't yeah, really that's know true, true. if that's happened yet. And they've been relatively, there's a level of, you know, just as Yun was describing the Chinese kind of laugh and say, oh, that'll never happen with India. Across all three, there is a level of, uh, of comfort, you know, just sort of, they're sagwine about that this isn't going to be a major problem. Uh, and, I, and I think that through the course of this discussion, we all felt there was a pretty big consensus that, you know, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't be this uh, relaxed about how things could get out of hand. Dan, I do want to get you in this, but yeah. let, me, let me add sure, a little sure. bit to, yeah. uh, to, to, yeah. to, to the complexity <laughs> of all of this. Because as you know well, you know, consecutive US administrations have invested very heavily in deepening our strategic partnership uh, with India. 
But the report also highlights that this engagement may still need to be coupled with a crisis management role to be defined um, that requires better lines of communication with everybody in the region, uh, notably uh, including India's rivals. And, uh, and I wonder, do, do China, and, in your view, do China and Pakistan see the U.S. as having the capability, the credibility to uh, be a mediator, a facilitator to, to uh, de-escalate future crises given the changing nature of our relationship with India? And, and how should U.S. policymakers be thinking of this? How should we be trying to balance our understandable desire for a closer relationship with India on the one hand, but with the need to manage the potential for conflict throughout the region? Yeah, this is a really important question. I just had one one sure. additional point on the on this cruise missile accidental launch. Yeah. One of the specific things that the report does identify as a, a recommendation and that others have recommended as well is that India and Pakistan do have a series of um, agreements on pre-notification of, of uh, missile tests. Now, that wouldn't have really come into play here because this was an accident. Uh, but if you, are in, if you are in the business of testing missiles in India and Pakistan, certain types of missiles you'll tell the other side ahead of time. Well, cruise missiles are not on the list. So this particular type of missile wouldn't actually be on there. So we're recommending, among other things, that this, is, this should be changed. Right? This seems like a fairly straightforward, low-hanging fruit, as you might say. In terms of the things that the United States can do uh, or how well it's positioned to manage crises in the future, to your question, Part of the, the challenge we have, uh, among other things, is that because our relationship with Pakistan has deteriorated, one could see in that um, less influence, less leverage in the midst of a crisis, and less trust on the Pakistani side. The same would be true in our relationship with China. Uh, with India, one would anticipate that because we have an improved relationship and a strategic partnership that we talk about a great deal, and that which is bipartisan and has a lot of oomph behind it here in Washington, that we would have a great deal of influence. What we found, unfortunately, is that our influence in these sorts of circumstances is less than we would like, uh, that we don't even uh, have our phone calls returned. Uh, in 2019, there were periods, there were gaps in communication that were worrisome uh, when India and Pakistan were, were going toe-to-toe. -to -toe. Um, so our leverage with India has not improved a great deal, necessarily. Our leverage with Pakistan may have deteriorated. This all makes us worried. Two uh, recommendations sort of related to that. One, that we should be, as we do continue, we hope to improve relations with India, we should have the technical means and the trust built into our system that would enable better information sharing. One of the things that we'd like to be able to do is we have pretty good eyes on some of the territory that we're talking about here. Uh, we have information that may be useful to help India avoid unnecessary escalation or anticipate uh, moves either by Pakistan or China. Uh, to the extent that we can be helpful in a crisis, this is the kind of information we'd like to be able to share. And the other recommendation has to do with communications. It's not just our communication with India as a partner, but communications between all of the players are far less robust than they should be, given the stakes. So hotlines, risk reduction centers, and other things are, the, are also proposed by the, the report. Uh, because these are the kinds of things that we have tried to build uh, over the years with the Russians and before that with the Soviet Union, which we think could be helpful in the midst of a crisis. Okay. Um, you touched on Russia, and I wanted to come back mm -hmm. there because uh, Russia's invasion of 
Ukraine, of course, occurred as you were wrapping up the report. But clearly, uh, that event, that unprovoked invasion, is having repercussions across the world. And I wonder, Ewan, if I might turn to you and, and ask to what extent that the, the Russian invasion is factoring into Chinese thinking um, about, generally, about its risk tolerance <laughs> in this environment. Um, uh, it, uh, is it just conceivable that um, witnessing Russia's uh, ir very disruptive, irresponsible behavior in Ukraine is causing China to be more cautious or more prudent about how it perceives the potentials for risk elsewhere, and notably, of course, in, South, in Southern Asia? Curious to know what your thinking is. Ellen. Thank you, Ambassador. Um, that question has been has been debated and asked and, and discussed in the. Yeah, it's an ongoing situation, and the because the war is not over, right? So the Chinese are still learning the lessons. I understand that PLA is analyzing each campaign, each operation quite closely, and the most important lessons that you draw is well, if you if you if you don't have to fight a war, please don't fight a war. So translating that to uh, China's contingency planning on Taiwan, if China had a plan to invade Taiwan, I would say that plan has been postponed for at least a number of years because there are these new factors that they're trying to absorb and assimilate. Um, in terms of the risk tolerance, I would say that China has become more cautious um, out of the war in, in Ukraine because the war just offers so many unexpected aspects that the Chinese anticipated that Russia would win in one week. I think a lot of us did. Um, but then they just watch in pain that this war drags on and Russia being bled out. And they worry about the potential nuclear escalation by, uh, by Russia. I think a lot of us are worried about that potential scenario. And they just think that in terms of the unexpected aspect, when they look at Taiwan, that, well, what if the local resistance is stronger than we saw? What if the Western non-military deterrence is stronger than we saw? And the cause that China has to put up with before China develops that 1,000 nuclear warheads is going to be unbearable for China. So I would say that the war in Ukraine has created a lot of uncertainty and a lot of debates in China as for what this means. Um, but then coming to, to South Asia, well, it has not been the most salient focal point for the Chinese deliberation uh, in, the, in the policy community. But I think one issue that the Chinese do take away from it is what Dan just mentioned, is that in terms of the U.S. influence over India, there seems to be a limit to it. That India will try to maintain a strategic autonomy and on key issues, maybe not on China, but on other issues, there are differences between China and India. And I think that has been perceived as relatively reassuring for the Chinese policy community, knowing that there are gaps and there are uh, disharmony between India, uh, India and the United States. Not necessarily directly translating um, to China's relation, implication for China's relationship with Pakistan, but I think there is one issue that does affect China's potential future interaction with India, which is the availability of Russian weapons to India. Because we know that Russia, um, faced with a shortage of semiconductor chips, um, and their ability to produce as much arms for, for weapon sales, is going to be potentially mitigated. So what does that mean for India, which is the largest, largest client of Russian-made arms? And how does that translate into the stability or the, what, the power balance and the power equilibrium between China and India in terms of their border disputes? I think that's the intriguing 
uh, intriguing question. And just related to that, because Russia by the end of this war is going to be so significantly weakened, right? So between China and, and Russia, that's going to create a pretty large imbalance of that, of that relationship. And what kind of policy leverage China has over Russia in terms of Russia's future alignment choices and Russia's, say, weapon sales to, to India? That also raises an intriguing question and I think deserves more deliberation down the road. Well, thank you for adding yet another layer of complexity on top of an already complex resolution. And Andrew, I was indeed, indeed going to go to you and um, get your take so, on this. Uh, well. You know, building on what, what, what Yun was, was just saying, I think yeah. uh, the caveat is it's too early to tell because yeah. the war is ongoing and, and it's too early to tell what lessons uh, China and the Chinese military are learning from Ukraine. But I think I'd be wary of thinking they're drawing the lessons we think they're drawing or we hope they're drawing uh, from this. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, on the, um, on the uh, side of... Uh, the mis mistakes or the problems, unanticipated problems, unexpected problems that the uh, Russian military is having. I think that uh, Chinese conclusion um, is, is likely that they didn't prepare properly, and we're going to prepare properly. And, and you know, p part of it is you know, we would call it uh, you know, build, you know, morale building, or uh, but the Chinese uh, or, or indoctrination. The Chinese would call it political work. So you've got to make prepare your troops. Uh, f for the conflict, and pretty clearly the Russians didn't do a very good job of, of, of that. Um, but uh, another m more relevant uh, issue or, or potential uh, lesson uh, that China's learning, uh, more relevant to s Southern Asia, is I, I think it may reassure um, uh, China, uh, unfortunately, that uh, that uh, you know the chances of nuclear escalation are are are. are they don't need to worry about it because Russia's made these threats. It's clearly been, it's clearly on the table, um, but you know we we still haven't we have yet to see that happen, and and and, uh, and and probably well, fingers crossed it won't it won't happen. But China taking the lesson from well we don't need you know it just reinforces the assumptions they've already that we've already heard that China's making about the potential for a nuclear. Uh, you know, confrontation or, or conflict in Southern Asia. So uh, I fear they're going to take just the, the lessons they're taking from Ukraine will just reinforce uh, assumptions, a priori assumptions they, they've made and, and not force a rethink. So they're drawing lessons opposite from the ones that we're drawing about the risk, uh, potentially. One, one, I think one really important question, certainly something I imagine the Indians are thinking about is, you know, let's say the Chinese decide the hardest of their periphery problems, which is Taiwan, they would maybe wait a while to see if they can't work the political warfare angle, mm -hmm. use other means to mm -hmm. weaken uh, the, the, you know, Taiwan's uh, ability to resist the eventual absorption by the mainland and things like that. But what does it mean for the Senkakus, the South China Sea, or the High Himalaya. So, yeah. you know, Arunachal Pradesh right. is there. They, they clearly chose a misadventure from our standpoint, but a signal with the Galwan mm -hmm. incident. Yeah. I, you know, our assessment in, in this group and others has been that, you know, this was not some sort of just accident mm -hmm. uh, by, the, by, by the PLA. Mm -hmm. This was not some adventurism. There was, this was, a, this was a push, a test. What it's resulted in is a good 
learning for the PLA, they can see what the Indian response has been. Uh, but we sort of have a situation now where there's 60-ish thousand troops on each side of that border, eye to eye, and forward deployed in what seems like it will be a permanent uh, stationing, not a temporary thing that's getting walked back from. And so the new variable here is Russia as the reliable partner of India, whether it wants to be or not, it won't be the same reliable partner it was, if for no other reason, just because it will have to recapitalize its own military and it will be under sanctions that make it difficult for it to build the things it exports and it might be hard to be a customer because you might end up violating sanctions. There's all sort of three layers of why it would be difficult to rely on Russia. And for India, that's every that's over 7,000 tanks are Russian. That is all of their armored personnel carriers. That is most of their missile systems have are Russian origin, and it's their and their uh, their uh, SSNs and SSBNs, their nuclear and nuclear missile submarines, are also you know Russian origin, even though the SSBNs are, are indigenous. Um, but you know, it was Russian, Russian help to get them there. So what does that do for India's thinking about its ability to withstand or to, to keep going, to keep in the fight if there's a crisis? And once again, I, you know, I think uh, as the Chinese are, are discounting the level, of, uh, you know, the level of concern that might arise in India if it doesn't have its the depth of conventional capabilities that it has long relied on. And if it hasn't you know, you know, built its triad up to the point that it feels it is really reliable, survivable, it has an undersea leg of its nuclear capabilities that it feels sure will deter Beijing from any, uh, you know, from certain moves. Um, you know, that coupled with China deciding, okay, maybe we're not gonna do Taiwan, but should we push a little harder up here where it's a little easier, um, uh, you know, Again, very unpredictable scenarios can unfold along yeah. those lines. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded that part of the problem of disequilibrium in forces and balance of forces is that, uh, going back to the logic uh, you, that you described, the Chinese logic of, as to why nuclear war in the, with India is, is discounted, it could be just the opposite precisely because if the Indians do not have the ability to respond in a conventional way, which is being diminished by, by virtue of the degrading of Russia's ability to, to play a role here, it, it could prompt India to respond more quickly to respond by resort to nuclear weapons. But Dan, I wanted to, to you touched on this earlier, the role that we could possibly play. We, we saw, for example, in the Ukraine, Ukraine conflict, the way in which we very, I think, very skillfully used information and intelligence to, uh, to inform the world about what was actually happening in, in Ukraine. And, and in this case, it didn't have the result that we had hoped it would be to, which was to dissuade the Russians from actually intervening. But it did give credibility mm -hmm. to our understanding of what Russian intentions were. And I think, uh, uh, so the question would be, to what extent might that same kind of use of deployment of information, communications, et cetera, be a useful contribution in a way to helping all the parties understand what really is going on, what, what the others are thinking and planning and doing, so that that knowledge might inform some greater restraint um, on their part? It's a, it's a really interesting question, and, and the, particularly because what we saw in Ukraine in the lead up to uh, the Ukraine war, Russia's invasion, 
steps taken by the United States to share uh, intelligence, uh, sort of breakthrough uh, change, I think, in terms of US policy, a willingness to, to provide uh, the types of information that I think in prior administrations would have been kept within the intelligence community and not provided, certainly not publicly. And you're right, it didn't keep the Russians from invading. But I think it, it did shape American and broader global public uh, perceptions of what was unfolding. And though, again, maybe our primary target might have been Moscow, our secondary target being our allies, I think it worked very effectively there. So could we, the United States, say in a looming crisis between India and Pakistan or India and China, uh, use similar tools right, to, to share what we see unfolding on the ground uh, maybe even in the midst of a crisis uh, as we see one thing happening and perhaps being mischaracterized by one of the players. Uh, would it be useful for us to provide that information more publicly? Uh, it's not as straightforward as you might think because you, you might imagine that transparency leads to stability. Um, unfortunately, we have seen circumstances that may lead us to think that it could conceivably even be counterproductive, right? So in the, in the 2019 India-Pakistan um, crisis, uh, there were various points at which um, either India or Pakistan, I think in retrospect, were characterizing events in ways that clearly played to their political advantages at home and portrayed the events as unfolding in ways that looked like victories. Uh, and in a sense, that wasn't so bad, because by portraying the event as a victory, you could step away from the brink, uh, and you could bring the crisis uh, to a, a swifter uh, conclusion. Now, the downside to that is that, and one thing that we've worried about in this report, is that the lessons learned from that, yeah. from that crisis then may be very wrong lessons, because both sides, uh, in this case India and Pakistan, believed and told their people that they were victorious and very capable, that their strategies were very effective. And so there will now, we anticipate, be pressures to undertake similar and perhaps even more aggressive steps the next time there's a crisis. So maybe it was useful in the near term that there be this kind of veil of ignorance over uh, the region so that people could declare victory and go home. But the longer term implications of that may be dangerous. So coming back to the, to the basic question, it is a live question for U.S. policymakers going forward how much information they should share publicly in ways that maybe in the past we wouldn't have considered. Um, and I think it's something that has been, uh, is because it's new, we need to go at it again internally and externally and continue to have research on this because you know, this is something that's changing quickly. And I just say that's also where the recommendation in the report on mm -hmm. wargaming and scenario exercising for the U.S. government on this makes a lot of sense because otherwise it, it's really hard to just make those judgments unless you've kind of thought through what might the various reactions and impacts be of what you choose to share. And so that, that, that's one of the recommendations that I think is relatively easy to implement and would, have a high, would pay high dividends. I want to talk to, I want you all, we're going to, a few more minutes here before we start taking audience questions, but, and I want to talk about the N7 and, and how you all visualize, envision its role, and given, given the, the lack of U.S. bilateral influence, certainly with China and with Pakistan, and not as much as we would hope with India. What are the other mechanisms? But before we get there, I want to layer yet another complica com complication on top of this, because we know that in the past, terrorist activity, terrorism, 
has played a significant role, particularly in the India-Pakistan relationship. Um, we now are in a situation, having pulled out of Afghanistan, we have far less visibility on what's going on there, certainly to what extent we had any, quote, control, even less. We have at the same time, Vikram, um, this, um, how, how do I describe it, growing Hindu nationalist sentiment in India, which is sparking increased uh, resentment, grievance on the part of Muslim communities. One can see many ways in which those two things could come together. And I just wonder how should we, th how, how concerned we should, should we be that a terrorist incident could be the spark that uh, triggers a larger, wider conflict, one that could escalate. I, I think that I think the nationalism, Hindu nationalism in India, and, and sort of its 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 mirror image inside Pakistan feed yep. exactly what Dan was talking yep. about. You know, this escalate to de-escalate. We're going to be tough. We're going to get, respond forcefully on both sides. Mm -hmm. um, it plays well to the domestic audience, and in the conventional wisdom is that. Um, the most likely means for a crisis to erupt between India and Pakistan is a terrorist attack that India uh, ascribes to Pakistan-backed, you know, or Pakistan-based militants, right? And uh, and and I think the the you mentioned Afghanistan. Yeah. There's there's no doubt that the collapse of Afghanistan, and the revival of the Taliban, is is increasing. There's a debate about how much, but it is increasing the, the, the sanctuary and the freedom of action for groups from TPP, uh, Turkey, Taliban, Pakistan, that's mainly focused on Pakistan right now, to LET, which has broader ambitions in Kashmir, to ISIS and Al-Qaeda, um, which have both articulated that India is sort of on the, their list of priorities uh, going forward. So you see um, a growing risk profile, and I, and I think that... Um, you know, I think that, that that is a dangerous brew. Strong nationalist governments that need to and should take strong counterterrorism actions, but they will feel compelled to respond forcefully, and then you enter a potential escalation cycle. Um, I would feel more comfortable about with that if there were really known, well-established communications mechanisms to manage that kind of escalation. Right. Um, in both, you know, in, in India and Pakistan bilaterally, and then in a potentially in an ideal world with other allies and partners, right? I mean, the, the, one of the things Dan talks about a lot is like, hey, if we're gonna, as we're deepening this partnership, part of it should be risk reduction and conflict management, crisis management discussions. I believe those should have been happening before, but certainly as we deepen partnerships, uh, um, that kind of open dialogue uh, is, is is potentially really life-saving. It could help prevent a, a, a crisis sparked by a terrorist incident from getting out of hand. Well, then let me just turn to you then, and if you would talk to us about, given you know, given your your perspective on how risk reduction has been practiced and. and Sure, and let me... And, 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 you know, just, what, what, and, and talk to us a little bit about the, your thinking, the report, the thinking in the report about the N7 and it's the role it might play. Okay, I will. Let me just add on first yeah. to Vikram because to draw the linkage between the growing terrorism risk in the region and safety and security of Pakistan's nuclear weapons and materials. Mm -hmm. Now they have, um, Pakistan yes. has done a dimension. lot over the years yep. um, to improve its internal 
practices in terms of the safety and security of its materials. And in fact, in an index that the NTI does, my organization, every couple of years, they got the score for like most improved on security and safety, partly for some regulatory structure they put in place. But it's still a country that's at great risk of um, leadership you know, disruptions in, in leadership, leadership change, um, as well as internal terrorist threat and insider threat, which is one of the biggest concerns in terms of the weapons and materials. And so that's something we can't um, take our eye off of. And I don't think that um, U.S. cooperation in this area with Pakistan is as um, robust as it used to be um, because our relationship has deteriorated overall. But, but the risk is there, and um, that's, and I can link that directly to the kind of things that the U.S. government should continue to be, you know, um, exercising and practicing and thinking about, you know, what would we do if? That's a set of circumstances we should stay prepared for. Um, in terms of the N7 idea, which I think we give great credit to my, our colleague Michael Crapon for, does it, it's the idea of gathering both the, the P5, the five uh, recognized nuclear powers under the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, um, as well as India and Pakistan into a, into a dialogue about nuclear risk reduction, strategic stability. Um, I personally, I think of this as a very important um, an aspirational idea, but probably not something that can come to bear in the next couple of years. Um, it is something that certainly could be pursued in a, in a track two um, environment and should be, and maybe it can on some subset of the issues you might talk about. Um, I think right now we're in an unfortunate circumstance where um, U.S.-Russian strategic stability dialogue is for obvious reasons in abeyance, and, well and it's critical to get that back on track. Um, we're, you know, we're seeing right now in real time what the risks are, and we have a, the only remaining treaty between us is uh, going to expire in a few years. And then we've talked a couple times to the, you know, the um, commitment or at least interest on the U.S. part in terms of trying to have a, a deeper dialogue with China. And of course, this goes back to when I was in the Obama administration. It's not new. But right. to have a, a more uh, sustained dialogue bilaterally with China about risk reduction, management. And now we have a lot of questions about you know, the projection of their nuclear force, where they're going with it, what is their doctrine, what, what are their threat perceptions that are driving that. Um, I think there's a lot to talk about. Traditionally, they've not wanted to because they feel that they're at a position of disadvantage because their force is so much smaller. But I don't, you know, that conversation has to be had. It's hard for me to see how we then move to an N7 before we've deepened that bilateral dialogue. But, but it may be that we can on discrete issues. Um, at NTI, we worry a lot about the intersection between cyber capabilities and nuclear systems and, and the risk of, um, Mis miscalculation and accident and that that kind of interference can can have and maybe there's it's a it's a very sensitive area to talk about but it also may be one where there's there it's possible to talk about that or other technologies yeah, you know hypersonics and that kind of thing yeah that's another area we haven't had a chance to get into is the whole question of technology and cyber and, and all of this but I just to close this out before we um, before we open it, open the floor to to the audience but to you and to Andrew Following up on, on what Lynn has just said about the, 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 what, what's possible, what do you think is possible in terms of 
engaging China in a more serious discussion of the strategic stability in the region. You, said, you touched on this in your opening comments, but I want to return to it because you know, as one is surveying the landscape here, um, dare I say, it seems that the prospects for a, for a dialogue with China on some of these things is, is better than it might be with others. Um, and and clear, clearly that, that relationship is key. But just if you would share with, you, with us and with the audience your thoughts about how we might, how the U.S. might approach um, this idea of a deepening dialogue with China on these issues. Andrew, go ahead. Go for it. I'll, I'll, I'll outline the challenges, and then and then Yun can, <laughs> can come up with the solutions. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I think the you know coming from this, having focused more on the Korean Peninsula. Yes. You know, so there's a nuclear challenge where there's the potential. There's been the potential and, and somewhat realized for U.S.-China cooperation, right? Yeah. Um, and so there's a, in a sense, it's not a completely negative example. There's some positives there. But going back to uh, what we what was said earlier, that uh, I think the potential for cooperation between the U.S. and China, whether it's on the Korean Peninsula or South Asia. Is, is really largely dependent on the overall climate of U.S.-China relations. And when they're not in a good place, that's really, really hard. Um, uh, so, but that, that said, if you, if you look at the example of, of, uh, of um, you know, the Korean Peninsula and uh, the, the uh, standing up of the six-party talks, uh, that, uh, that why did China do that? And China really stepped outside of its comfort zone on that one. That, that was unprecedented for China to take ownership of that, host it. They were taking a risk, but why did they take that risk, a calculated risk? Well, the U.S. encouraged it, supported it, um, but China was also really worried about what would happen if it didn't do something. So I'm, I'm not saying we should use Southern Asia as a laboratory to test things out, but I, I, I think if we monitor the situation carefully, um, we, we might be able to notice and, and leverage the findings of the report. We might be able to identify you know, opportunities uh, or, or when, when things present themselves, situations present themselves, seize, seize them uh, to uh, seek to you know, engage or bring China more in as a constructive, constructive partner. All right. Now, over to you. <laughs> um, well, between U.S. and China, there had been a track to dialogue on, on nuclear issues, and that was ongoing for um, a, about 20 years until the, um, in 2018, there was a, uh, the Department of Justice indictment of the PLA general, um, Li Shangfu, who is in, responsible for the general, um, general ammunition department. Um, and then the Chinese took great offense of that, and then they, they were like, we're not gonna approve this dialogue anymore, and then COVID happened, and we're not gonna have this, uh, this dialogue, at least not, not in person. Um, so I, I feel that it raises a question for the United States as well. Are we happy, or are we going to be satisfied with a track two, knowing that the Chinese will not engage in a track one official dialogue on this topic? Because uh, the door to track two dialogue about the strategic stability issues is still open. And the Chinese partner, um, the organization uh, CIFIS, China Foundation for International Strategic Studies, they're still, they're still ready. They still want to engage, but 
only on the track two level, because for the official level, my understanding is strategic force in China is still very reluctant to open their books. And they don't want to engage in this talk because they feel vulnerable, they feel that we're inferior and we are being asked to provide more transparency and we are already disadvantaged to, to begin with. So I think strategic force is a pretty big obstacle to, uh, to move this dialogue forward on the official track. But on the Chinese side, there's also something else that's, uh, I would say, technical that people don't quite realize, which is the military reform that the PRW has conducted. What it has led to a, uh, a, a result is that, so for the Central Military Commission, there is a Department of International Cooperation. So this type of dialogues are supposed to be, to be coordinated by this uh, Department of International Cooperation, but their bureaucratic ranking or their military ranking is no longer as, 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 as high as, it, uh, for example, the PIA chief of staff used to be. So before the Chinese, I feel that internally straightened out this, uh, this bureaucratic ranking issue and have designated people and offices to manage this type of dialogues. I feel that us asking the Chinese to, to, to present a dialogue track is going to be bureaucratically uh, infeasible, at least on the, on the Chinese side. And uh, the good news is that uh, Shangri-La dialogue will be happening in person next month. So, I understand, that, I understand the two defense ministers will finally have their um, in-person meeting, and we will see whether anything could come out of that. Um, and last but not least, I think the Korean Peninsula and six-party talks is a pretty good example where when, when the U.S. reaches out to China and it really asks for China, China's assistance to play a constructive role, and also at the same time, I would say that let the Chinese play issue linkage a little bit, because the Chinese will not uh, do what the U.S. asks to unless they see a favorable endgame for their, for their interest. Um, I think the Chinese will be willing to cooperate. In fact, even today, I think one of the top issues the Chinese policy analysts run around and ask is that, is there still any issues that the U.S. really need Chinese cooperation? Because if there is, then let's bargain. Let's talk about, um, talk about your U.S.-Taiwan fact sheet. So I think that's, uh, that's really the Chinese mentality. So if there is a crisis scenario, and we do perceive that the Chinese cooperation is indispensable, then I think there is a window and space for, uh, for negotiation, but with a, with a very clear, sober understanding that the Chinese will not be doing us a favor. They will be looking for a bargain. Well, I could easily imagine, given the all the uncertainties we're dealing with at the moment, being a good diplomat, being able to craft a, a message for China that says, yes, we do indeed need your assistance <laughs> in figuring out how we together are going to manage the, the, the risks that we both experience at the moment, uh, uh, given, given nuclear threats. Um, we had promised the audience uh, that we would open the floor. And uh, I'm going to do my best to. Uh, we have this new sophisticated system. It used to be that they just handed the moderator cards, and now we have, <laughs> we have this. So here's a, now this is a good question for all of us. Uh, in the Southern Asia arms race, each country is looking to their more powerful rival and trying to catch up. This is a problem we are just talking about. Are there any opportunities for more powerful countries, US, China, you know, to help reassure their allies, India and Pakistan, and to encourage sustained dialogue 
between among all four countries? Vicar, I'm going to start with you, and then I'm going to turn to Dan. Sure. I mean, I, I'm, glad, I'm glad that question was asked. I mean, a big part of our deliberations in this report was about yeah. the sort of the, the, the cascading, it's called, you know, uh, security dynamics that you see. So China is building to deter the United States. Mm -hmm. Thousand Warheads is aimed at that. India is building to deter China. Submarine nuclear capabilities for a triad are, are for that. Uh, Pakistan is looking, seeking a minimum credible deterrent uh, when it faces India. That, that, that results in some very big disequilibriums yeah. because as China builds to match to U.S. power, that for it leads India to say, wow, we better, we better step up our game, and then it cascades down to Pakistan. It has impacts in force posture, force structure, uh, and doctrine. So, you know, Pakistan at the end of that chain, and, you know, we have a little piece of the report that talks about the scale of spending, like what, and it is orders of magnitude as you go up the chain, right? So at the bottom there, Pakistan has a doctrinal impact, which includes Pakistan uh, not having a no first use policy, which both India and China have. It includes Pakistan having a doctrine that includes the use of tactical nuclear weapons as something that is, is, uh, is actively there. That's an effort, that's a part of its uh, deterrence posture vis-a-vis -vis India. So. I think that um, this is a really interesting question. It depends on how much uh, the two outside power, the bigger powers in this case, China and the United States, um, how much they embrace this notion that we have picked sides and there are there are there are is this dyad now where it's China, Pakistan, India, United States. In a world in which that's pretty overt. Um, then I think the the ally has an ability to offer a bit of an umbrella, and that is that that could be stabilizing in that in that world. But we're in this really complicated interregnum, where you know we're not allies with India, and we're not going to be. And China, you know, they they may have whatever highest mountains and all of that stuff with Pakistan, but it's not really it doesn't have the makings, doesn't have the trappings of a of a of a really binding alliance commitment. And, and in that atmosphere, I think that it is less likely. At the, in the best of times, allies' commitments to one another are, 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 can be strong, but they're not definitive. They're not always, you know, rock solid is not always that solid. So right now in this interregnum, I don't think there's much scope for reassurance. I think each country is going to continue to make its own judgments about what it needs to deter its bigger rival and manage its smaller one if, there's, if, it's, you know, if it's China or India sitting in the middle. Well, uh, yes, that one. Uh, that one uh, struck me because I think one of the things, um, just factoring into this, we're talking about this, uh, you know, the levels of spending here. And by the way, to the extent that we're all spending money on arms, it means we're spending less on money on a lot of other things that ought to be, we ought to be paying attention to, climate change. Um, but um, you know, we have also the U.S. also has to be mindful of how its own actions, our own policies our own nuclear strategies, um, what the implications of those are for the thinking, um, let's go down the list, Russia, China, India, Pakistan. Uh, what would you, Dan, caution American policymakers here as we're thinking about how we might, uh, first and foremost, do no harm in terms right. of contributing to, to miscalculation, but 
but help hopefully um, contribute sure, to. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I'd like to hear uh, what Lynn has to say on this in part, uh, okay. because at the global level, I think that's, that's uh, really an area of her expertise. But mm -hmm. I would say, reinforcing some of what uh, Vikerman said, and one of the conversations that maybe was most interesting to me as this report came together is whether the United States in its actions perhaps meant to be stabilizing and reassuring in the region and by its own heft, as you point out, I mean, our own nuclear arsenal, our own military capabilities, whether we have the potential to ourselves be destabilizing, intentionally or unintentionally, largely unintentionally, uh, we'd like to think. But um, particularly with respect to our support to India, we had some very interesting conversation about what lines we would want to cross or not cross in terms of supporting India's own nuclear developments. Now, you'll see the report actually ends up being, I think, fairly conservative on this point. That is there are not a lot of things that we can and should do directly to assist India's nuclear developments because most of them would likely be, first of all, not really accepted by India at this moment, so that's a practical consideration, but also, more strategically, could be um, provocative, particularly to China, in ways that would be unhelpful. So that's something to worry about. One other quick point that I, I don't want to let slide is a number of members of the group uh, when thinking about reassurance and when thinking about longer-term prospects for peace would come back around to things that are sort of more fundamental about economic development, about opportunities for actually creating, in a sense, constituencies who favor peace between these states and for recognizing that they actually have benefits to at least, certainly stability, if not um, arriving at a lasting peace and a, and a means to address the, the underlying reasons why these hostilities persist. Um, and so we make uh, at least some, some basic recommendations there in the report as well that I, I wouldn't want to let slide. Yeah, that's a very, and, and open the lens and rec recognize that you know, yeah. if, if you want peace, you have to be, give people a stake in it. Exactly. And, uh, and of course, we've seen that in the past with efforts between India and Pakistan. Uh, but sadly, seem to have been aborted or come to naught. I think both India and Pakistan are wait, they, they have a view that eventually the other will come to its senses and decide. That, right? <laughs> so for India, it's like Pakistan's economy is half that of Bangladesh per capita now. Won't they wake up and say, we want peace, let's settle things, and we can get on with economic... And Pakistan also says, won't India decide, like, hey, why are we letting this legacy problem be such a, you know, drag on us, yeah. like sort of a, yeah. to reduces India's overall... And they're both sort of waiting for each other in that way. Lynn, you... Dan suggested you might want to also jump in on that previous question about U.S. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think the bottom line for me, it is not in the United States national security interest for any additional countries to be acquiring nuclear weapons or for the countries that currently have them to be expanding their nuclear arsenals. Um, and yet the trends are going in the wrong direction globally. And so the only way to start, and this does kind of come around in the N7 eventually, but yeah. you know, we are gonna have to somehow, coming out of this crisis with Russia, get get back on the track of you know, maintaining regulation and limitations and hopefully further reductions on our nuclear systems. Um, but that, of course, is complicated now by the expectations about China's arsenal because that's going to directly affect 
what are the limits we can live with? You've already got some analysts out there. And by the way, Ukraine is a little bit of a Rorschach test. People mm. in the nuclear, in the, the theological nuclear policy community, people look at the crisis and it reinforces what they, what they believe. So, um, so there are those who, who are already looking at that crisis. I'm not one of them who say that we should be getting out of the New Start Treaty right now and 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 deploying you know more weapons. Um, I don't think that's the right answer and. In, in some ways, what Russia's done in Ukraine has kind of turned deterrence on its head because they're basically using the umbrella of, of nuclear weapons, you know, to freely attack a non-nuclear weapon state and keep the United States and NATO out. Yes. But that wouldn't be any different if we have 500 or 1,000 more weapons or three different types of nuclear silicums or whatever that we don't have now. I mean, it's kind of insensitive to the numbers. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway. I'm, I'm losing the train here, but the point is we need to, it's not going to be in our interest for interest, and this was an issue of some, I'd say, debate in the yeah. report drafting, yeah, right. to in any way, um, I think, reinforce um, the nuclear programs of India, and of course not of Pakistan either, um, and we shouldn't be supporting it, and you know, we ought to ideally be encouraging both of those countries to be you know, moving away from not doubling down on their nuclear, you know, arsenals, although clearly that's, that's not happening right now. One of the really powerful things that came out of this was a, was a sense that, you know, the new era of, you know, geostrategic competition has kind of left arms control and nonproliferation as mm -hmm. neglected stepchildren of the part of under, you know, the, the underpinnings of global stability. And that what we were looking at here has applicability in many other contexts where either initiatives have not worked yet, like North Korea, or you have a breakdown like between Russia and the United States. And you know, that fundamental point being that you would want these nuclear powers to engage in discussions so that they manage and then and seek to reduce their dependence on nuclear weapons, seek to build have confidence building steps to manage and move towards a global, you know, towards the, 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 the decrease. I do think that our own modernization agenda, driven largely by China and Russia and hypersonics and other technological changes, makes that harder for the United States to advocate for. Yeah. We're being pressed to go in, in the opposite direction by the evolution of technology here. I, I see some of, the, some of the questions here would like us to get a little bit more into the practicalities here. What, what are the things practical things that can be done, and I think two levels. One, in the region, we sort of touched on this earlier, um, improving information communication, creating the kinds of structures, mechanisms, protocols that we've seen in other parts of the world that have helped manage crises and prevent escalation or contribute to de-escalation. And then the second part of that is, is you know, right here at home, what is it? What's, what's the report's advice and counsel recommendation to American policymakers about what we ought to be doing now to better position and prepare ourselves to play um, to the extent that we can. I, I'm moderating it all. Shall I start with you, Dan? I can and jump then, in. And I'll yeah. open it up um, to just, just to reiterate, yeah. uh, you know, Vikram, I think earlier mentioned yeah. gaming and, and yes. preparatory exercises. 
look, a lot of this is, you would think, would be relatively easy. Mm -hmm. Some of it is, in fact, being done, which yes. is wonderful. More of it could be done. One of the things about the report, and I think this conversation has really made this clear, is this is a, an evolving situation. Mm -hmm. So you, it's not a one and done. You don't do the game and figure out what you think is going to happen, and then you're done. This is a repeating thing. And for U.S. policymakers, particularly those based in any of these three countries or working back here in Washington, um, all of them need, as they come into their various positions of authority, need to play the games again uh, effectively, need to get these briefings, need to have these conversations, need to walk through... Uh, what we found to be uh, worrisome in part because it is so complicated, because there are so many moving pieces and players. And so when it's not just an old-fashioned, what we think of now as old-fashioned India-Pakistan mm -hmm. crisis, right. but it's an India potentially two-front crisis that gets further complicated by mis mistakes or accidents, um, how do you play that out? So that's one line of, of thinking. Another very different one had to do with um, leveraging uh, non-military tools of influence in the region. Um, and so we had some interesting conversations about uh, the types of um, groupings that may come together to help, say, uh, reinforce uh, deterrence messages against China for taking provocative actions or reinforce uh, messaging uh, to Pakistan about not supporting terrorist organizations. Um, some of these are uh, more in the realm of financial or economic tools that we would like to see explored further. So, for instance, in the 2020 crisis between India and China, uh, India attempted to signal to China its displeasure about what was happening by banning certain Chinese web applications from, mm. from Indian markets, mm. by keeping Chinese companies out of certain um, competitions for, for Indian mm. projects. Mm. Um, India alone will have a very difficult time leveraging its much smaller economy and against China. But India, working together with partners and allies, including potentially through the Quad, would have a far greater heft. And we'd like to see more of that being done. Andrew, any thoughts you have taking away from the report, things that struck you as being helpful, useful, things that we ought to be either trying to do in the region, doing here at home, to better position ourselves? Yes, but I, I, further to what so one of the themes, I don't think we're unlikely to get immediate payoffs. Um, okay. So we've got to, like with, with the N7, I think we've got to persist with that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not going to, uh, China's, as we've discussed, not, not immediately receptive to that, but we, we've got to chip away at these things. And, and suggesting is, uh, some, some recommendations, as, Jan, uh, as Dan mentioned, on. Uh, uh, trying, trying to uh, shape or influence um, or, or, or deter, dissuade uh, China um, from, you know, using non-military uh, instruments, and yet, uh, not, not to be a, you know, a, a naysayer, but I think we also need to uh, be open to the possibility that uh, non-military non uh, instruments may not have the intended effect we want, because, for example, Go back to Ukraine. That raises in China's minds, uh, Chinese minds, uh, fears of food insecurity, and uh, you know uh, questions about uh, new uh, energy security, and, and so signaling, doing doing the things that, that sound like a good idea, 
that we think will be may deter or dissuade China may have may have the opposite effect. And so, I, I like to say this trite trite saying that deterrence is in the eye of the beholder. And so, what we you know what what the, what someone trying to deter another uh, thinks is. Uh, you know, is a, is a pretty clear message that will de-escalate or, uh, or dis, um, may have may, may have the uh, the opposite effect. Yeah, this sort of goes back to Dan's point earlier. Yes, and, and Lynn, please. One thing is a um, to add on to what Dan was saying. I thought one of the interesting recommendations from the report, in terms of some of the exercising and pre-planning, was in recognizing that we may not be able to play the kind of neutral arbiter role that we have in the past to do some planning with allies or other countries in the region or the Middle East who might be better positioned to play that role, but do some pre-discussions pre with them in terms of crisis, crisis planning and risk management. So. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was interesting to see how, uh, say, the UAE uh, or uh, the UK mm -hmm. uh, may be able to play roles that um, yep. uh, sort of, in a sense, Potentially, you know, less powerful than the United States, clearly, but uh, perhaps as honest brokers or perceived as acceptable conduits of information, at the very least, by regional players, where we are perceived as increasingly biased. Okay. I'm mindful, of course, we have a big summit going on here in Washington right now, ASEAN. Mm -hmm. To what extent, <laughs> we were talking earlier about uh, getting other actors involved, um, is, is, this, is there some utility here, or is, 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 would this be counterproductive to the effort to, to try to, for example, influence China's thinking about what's going on in the region and the, and the potential risk? I, I did get a chance to talk to some of the ASEAN folks in town over the week, and you know, the, the, the question in the region is about China predominantly, yeah. right? How to keep a good economic relationship with China and how to stave off any bad actions China, China might take vis-a-vis, -vis you know, especially countries in maritime Southeast Asia who face, uh, you know, challenges from China in their, in their EEZs. Yeah. Yeah. Mainly concerns about um, sustainability, mainly concerns about food and economic coercion and things like that. Um, so obviously none of them want to see military conflict um, I do think when, when Southeast Asian nations are unified in calling for stability and you know, constructive engagement, that, that, can have some, that can have some impact. But mostly what they're looking to in this configuration is for India and the United States to be partners that help them with managing the, neg the downside parts of China without turning it into Maybe some kind of a conflict. So, you, so interestingly, that is, a, that is a, a, a bit of an arc of potential cooperation. The Quad is interesting because for ASEAN nations, the Quad is potentially a competitor. Uh, sort of a forum that maybe mm -hmm. the U.S. and India see this as a way to get things done that they can't do with ASEAN because ASEAN is a consensus-driven organization. But I think on balance, there is a welcoming and a view that it's stabilizing to have um, countries that are more, uh, more or less the, the democracies and the big powers of the region working together on a constructive agenda. So I think the ASEAN countries like they value that it's not about the quad's not about not a military focused grouping it's about what can we do constructively in the region to kind of compete with china 
Um, and in that sense, there's maybe some benefits where they can benefit from China and benefit from what the US, Japan, Australia, and India um, bring together. But they, they would mostly just like to see um, the risk of conflict diminish. Um, and so I think those governments would all welcome any kind of confidence building measures you could see in the Southern Asia uh, strategic stability context. So I'm mindful we have uh, just a couple of minutes left and I want to give an opportunity for any of you to sort of um, share your final thoughts, the things you would wish the audience to, to take away from this conversation. So briefly. I can, yeah, I can kick it off. Uh, I would just say, you know, we've, we've talked about so many parts of the report, yep. but one piece of it that we haven't touched upon mm -hmm. is that um, it has uh, two and a half, in a sense, capsule case studies. Yes. Looks Indeed. at the 2019 crisis between India and Pakistan, looks at the 2020 crisis between India and China, mm -hmm. and looks at the potential in a box of uh, nuclear terrorist uh, yes. events and, and right. connections to Afghanistan. I think for anybody who's uh, thinking about these issues, these are the three areas where um, most of our minds are drawn for, in terms of thinking about lessons. And thinking, and so if you mm -hmm. want to understand what U.S. policymakers mm -hmm. are thinking about when they address these kinds of problems, yep. these are the case studies you need to look at. Mm -hmm. They're very concise, and I would commend them to, to all readers. Terrific. Thanks. Thanks for reminding us. Lynn, any final thoughts? I'll, I'll pass to my okay. colleagues. <laughs> Yun, what, uh, what should uh, Secretary Austin be saying in his upcoming <laughs> Oh boy, um, <laughs> there's nothing he doesn't well, already how know. How would you advise him? <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say that because of the, well, the, the overall context of the great power competition was strategic competition with China, uh, anything that we want China to do is going to be an uphill battle. And sorry, it's going to be anything that we want to convince China to do is going to be an uphill battle. It's, an going, uphill to, battle. Okay. it's, going, to be, it's going to be hard. The Chinese yeah. will look at every issue through the lens and the prism of U.S.-China strategic competition mm -hmm. and think about how it would strengthen China's hands. So countries like North Korea, like Pakistan, are being hoarded as strategic leverage mm -hmm. for future utility. And that's not good news. And that's unfortunately what we're looking at. Okay. Andrew? Final thoughts? There are obviously uh, other pressing, uh, more, more from a U.S. perspective, more pressing issues like Ukraine and, and, and so on. So it's easy to yeah. overlook or, 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 or not pay adequate attention uh, uh, to what we've, the issue we've been um, talking about today. But I think considering this is, South, Southern Asia is really ground zero for the stability instability paradox. And so you've, you can't ignore it. You've got to keep an eye on it while you're, you know, while you're uh, responding, to, you know, putting out fires elsewhere in the world. Thank you for that. Okay. What he said. What he said. Yeah. Indeed, what he said. Look, I want to, I want to thank all of you, um, first and foremost, for the report, but secondly, for your helping us to, um, to tease out the, the, the critical, the key elements of that report. I, I have a funny feeling that our audience is going to be rushing to the website right now in order to, to get a hold of it and read it, which you should, because this is, it certainly is worth reading. So thank you all uh, very much, and uh, congratulations on a terrific report. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.